Greetings. Welcome to The Dividing Line on a Friday. We're doing Monday, Friday this week. I don't know that we're doing anything next week <laughs> uh, at all, So, but we will we'll still be here. Uh, other stuff going on, important stuff going on. And so um, nothing happened since Monday anyways. So, you know, I'm just going to sit here and read old emails uh, anyways. Uh, nothing's, nothing's going on. Just, you know, you've got the entire election thing going on and we're, that's right. We're doing nothing at 1080p today. Um, we have the uh, connection difficulty fixed for the moment. Um, you know, it was fine till a month ago, and then it stopped being fine. So it could stop being fine a month from now. But you, you're thankful for what you've got while you've got it. And I don't know why anyone needs to look at me at 1080p anyways. That's sort of scary to me. Uh, I think 640 by 480 was just fine. Uh, I think that's a very good resolution. My first digital camera is 640 by 40, and I think that's I think that's great. Anyway, uh, a few things did happen actually. Now that we're now that we're having to be honest and, and think about it, a few things did uh, happen. One of those things that took place uh, happened in uh, the Twitterverse, and um, so. Uh, Let's go ahead and and talk about the Twitterverse for just a moment. Yes, I was turning the air conditioning down, which I forgot to do when I came in. My books do not need to have it quite as cool as I am comfortable with. But anyway, uh, most of you would find what we are comfortable with to be very uncomfortable in other parts of the of the nation. I can uh, I can assure you of that. Dr. Timothy Keller, I have to obviously um, we we approach. Uh, Current situation, uh, praying for Dr. Keller's uh, health, of course. Uh, but I also recognize that his Twitter account, as we have noted for years, says that his son posts there, too. I think that's very confusing. Um, but I'm going to assume that if you allow your name to appear and you've got little check next to your name, uh, that what appears there actually represents your perspectives. And since an entire thread on freedom of conscience and uh, politics uh, was posted that is highly consistent with Dr. Keller's positions expressed elsewhere, I'm going to assume that these represent Dr. Keller's position. And in essence, the argument was being made that there are numerous uh, moral issues in which the Bible identifies the immorality of an action, but does not necessarily identify the proper and wisest methodology for dealing with the presence of a sinful behavior, violation of God's law, etc., within a society. And basically, a lot of people understood this to be saying that the upcoming election in the United States is, in essence, morally neutral. Um, that you can look at various aspects of what will be represented by the two sides and say, this is a toss-up. Of course, I just immediately stop and say, okay, we, we need to understand that if Kamala Harris is elected president, and that's what we're talking about here, um, whoever fills that office from that side, uh, has already said, has already uh, uh, publicly committed to the Equality Act. The Equality Act is the end of religious freedom in the United States. It is. 
You can't argue that. No, no one can possibly argue that the Equality Act is anything other than the end of religious liberty in the United States. It is the end of religious education in the United States. It is the enshrinement of homosexuality, transgenderism, and yes, now I, I don't see how you can avoid polygamy, polyamory, and pedophilia in all of that. Be, on, on what logical ground are you going to argue against the pedophiles who are now crawling out of the woodwork? Once you have abandoned any kind of Judeo-Christian understanding of humanity, sexuality, once you let Darwin finish his work, um, assisted by Foucault and Derrida and all the much lesser lights who have followed them into the public square over the past 20 years, uh, you, you have... You have no foundation for arguing any of the old ways of human dignity, human value, sexual mores, et cetera, et cetera. You, you just don't. We're, we're just animals. Uh, we're stardust. Uh, we, are, we are chemicals fizzing, and it all just becomes whatever fashion the fizz is, is the way is is these days. So um, the, the problem is that the left has defined itself fundamentally as opposing anything that can be defined as Christianity. It has defined itself as opposing God's definition of male and female, God's definition of marriage, God's definition of sexuality, God's definition of the family, God's definition of the government. God's definition of anything that's moral and good, including inserting government into the role of the giver of charity, which it does extremely poorly and, in fact, creates more and more poor for its own purposes. So... I have yet to have someone on the left be able to explain to me in any type of rational way how you can just simply throw your hands up and say, well, it's a toss-up. It's toss-up. You've got that abortion thing, but we've got caring for the poor. No, you've got creating the poor, not caring for the poor. Providing opportunities for the poor, that's caring for the poor. Uh, creating more poor is not caring for the poor. But. Uh, but yeah, you've got the abortion thing, we've got caring for the poor, and you've got the transgender thing, but we've got caring for the poor, and uh, you've got the end of religious liberty, but we've got caring for the poor. That, that's, all, that's all it ends up boiling down to. They, they cannot come up with any kind of meaningful way of getting around the fact that the one side is not saying, <coughs> is not saying that abortion is a bad thing that we should try to limit, just not limit it in the way that the people on the right. That, that's what it was in the late 1980s, maybe. That's not what it is today. That's not what it is today. So, Timothy Keller wrote the following tweet. Some folks are missing the point of this thread. The Bible tells me that abortion is a sin and great evil. Notice he didn't say it was murder. Dr. Keller, is it murder? 
right there in New York City. Will you will you stand up and say abortion is the murder of unborn children? Yes or no? I want to know. I think a lot of people would like to know. Will you say that? The Bible tells me that abortion is a sin and great evil, but it doesn't tell me the best way to decrease or end abortion in this country, nor which policies are most effective. I guess this is what happens when you live in New York City for a long, long period of time. Um, the Bible doesn't tell me the way to decrease or end abortion in this country. You see, the problem here is you could say that about gluttony. You could say that um, because, I mean, gluttony is is a serious thing. The Bible does identify gluttony as a sin, right? Yeah, but that's one of the lesser sins. Well, it, it can lead to death. It has many times led to death. In fact, it's leading to death right now. One of the leading comorbidity uh, factors in COVID-19 deaths is morbid obesity, the result of gluttony. So it could be a life and death thing. So we can talk about how to decrease gluttony. But when we're talking about this issue, the assumption of Dr. Keller's words is that there's somebody on the left that wants to talk about decreasing or ending abortion. Abortion is the sacrament of the religion of the left. You, you try, you just try to stand up and say abortion is wrong and maintain any position in the Democratic Party today. Good luck. It's not going to happen and you know it. The Joe Biden, a hypocrite. I don't know if he remembers being a hypocrite, to be perfectly honest with you. But for many years, he supported the Hyde Amendment. He supported not forcing all Americans to pay for abortions, but to become the presidential nominee, uh, he has turned his position. Does not provide us with any logical or rational reasoning for that, of course, because there isn't any, but he's done so because he's a politician and a hypocrite. Um, so Kamala Harris, we know, uh, voted to not protect the victims of abortion who are born a lot to allow them to die once they're, they're born and infanticide. So we're, we're talking about people here who worship at the, at the altar of Moloch. These are, these are, are people who are supporting the murder of unborn children, right, left and center as a moral good. This is the left in the United States today. This is who they are. And they consider it a moral good. You are against women's health care, if you say otherwise. You are against reproductive rights, if you say else, uh, otherwise. That's their position. So, Dr. Keller's tweet doesn't make any sense, because it assumes that there is some way to vote for the left as a best way to decrease or end abortion in this country. The left does not want any limitation 
in any form, even as mild a form as if the poor baby survives the abortion, don't stab it to death after it's born. No, 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 no. That's your left. That's that's what you're. That's what Dr. Keller is saying. Well, you know that 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 might that might be the best way to decrease uh, abortion in this country. Really. Um, this is what happens when you're in New York too long. It, it, it's just sort of the, it's in the air, I guess. That's, maybe, that's, maybe that's a good thing that everyone's leaving New York. Um, get out in the fresh air. Maybe whatever it is they've been spraying from the top of the buildings will stop having the effect it's been having. I don't know. Um, but what struck me when I read this thread and then this concluding statement was, no, you need to understand that there is one side. Now, one side is filled with cowards and people motivated by greed and people who say they believe things they don't really say. They're hypocrites because they're politicians. I get that. I get it. But one side has been very clear and very open in putting up the statue of Moloch and the altar and telling the world, put us in power and ev- we will force everyone to worship at this altar. And this altar includes not only the murder of unborn children, but unfettered sexual license to do anything. Look at California. Hello. Look at New York. Look at what they're doing. Unfettered sexual behavior is coming. We've been saying this forever. There is no logical or rational reason to draw a line in the sand anywhere. The only reason that anyone has drawn a line in the sand in the past was because they knew it would be so grossly offensive to anyone who still has a conscience. And so they've got to get votes. And so they've pretended, oh, we would never promote such a thing when there's nothing in their worldview to stop them from promoting such a thing. Dr. Keller isn't looking at worldview here. How can he not? How can he not? What is the worldview of the left in this situation? Why is abortion the sacrament of the left? Why is unfettered sexual license and no definitions? No male, no female. Remember Joe Biden? I think it was before covid he wouldn't remember, but I think it was before COVID, was literally saying, I think it was late last year, uh, October, November, was saying transgender rights are the key civil rights issue of our day. Now, he's not doing that anymore because, well, the wind changed. And now it's now the wind's filled with smoke, but the wind changed. And so everything's altered. But that's what he said. Remember, we talked about it in the program. Transgender rights, the key civil rights issue of our day. Anyone who believes that, you cannot, as a Christian, vote for that person without sacrificing your mind and your integrity in the process. How can you do that? Transgenderism is a fundamental denial of the right of Jesus Christ to define his own creation. That's what it is. So how can you how can you say well 
yeah, this person denies the, the Lordship of Christ in life, in sexuality, in marriage. He promotes absolute godlessness, the exact opposite of what Scripture teaches. But because this stuff over here, it's okay. Because he wants a nanny state, that's okay. Um, all right. There you go. I don't understand that. I reject it. I cannot believe that anyone could ever stand up for 20 minutes and defend that in a debate. But there you go. Um, I, I will not speculate as to what has caused this kind of a change over the decades. I cannot imagine... I cannot imagine if a politician stood up in 1990, only 30 years ago. 30 years ago is not that long ago, folks. Can you imagine somebody who stood up 30 years ago and promoted what Joe Biden and Kamala Harris promote today and Timothy Keller going, you know, got to have your freedom, you know, one way or the other. There might be reasons to vote for, you know, someone promoting gay marriage and uh and transgenderism and uh, filling 8-year-old boys with uh with uh, puberty blocking hormones uh, on, on government demand and uh, oh sure yeah you know, got to have your conscience got to have there there might be that, that might be the best way to handle things now, the best way to handle things is defined by God's word and God's word says those things are evil and uh, so yeah so a lot of folks were comparing and contrasting the East Coast and the West Coast uh, because you have Dr. Keller in New York City, epicenter of Marxist broiling violence uh, in the United States on uh, the East Coast. And then you have John MacArthur on the West. I understand that t- today or t- t- were they they're supposed to be in court today or was that yesterday? I forget when it was. I haven't seen any. Uh, any updates as far as I'm sure they're going to be charged minimally with um, contempt. Um, but uh, there you go. Uh, that's that's the situation we're facing there. We continue to pray for Grace Community Church uh, because the position that God has put them in. They're in uh, the so- Soviet Socialist Republic of California and uh, or maybe Chinese Communist Republic of California, which the Soviets are sort of out of date. The the current folks who are clearly, um, did you notice, uh, I was a little out of touch with uh, some stuff, um, reminding myself of what 2,400 baud uh, <laughs> internet access is like uh, up in the place that I stayed for a few days last week. I'll be staying for more days this week. Um, my one little getaway this year, as far as uh, cycling goes, uh, you can pray. If, if you like the program, pray that I don't fall off the mountain. If you don't like the program, pray that I will fall off the mountain, uh, this coming, uh, this coming week. Um, because, uh, we're, we're doing some, uh, some ridiculous, uh, amount of, of climbing at a very high altitude. But anyway, uh, I caught, uh, Tucker Carlson's interview with the, Chinese virologist who Michael Fallon and Kathy had interviewed a month earlier. <laughs> yes, yes, they had. Um, so Tucker's just catching up. And uh, then she gets banned by Twitter 
And Tucker gets bounced off Facebook uh, for uh, doing this interview. None of those people could even begin to interact with the information, which if you, if you don't understand it, what the Chinese virologist is saying is that you can look at the genetic makeup of the virus and identify certain aspects of the genome that this comes from there and that comes from there and that comes from there, but there's nothing naturally occurring that has all of them together, which means somebody has been using CRISPR technology to create stuff in a lab in Wuhan. Um, and now how it got out, lots of theories, uh, the fact that it just happened to happen in 2020, Dad, you know, hey, uh, that's just all coincidence. But all, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What I found most interesting was how surprised Tucker was because he knew what she was going to say. He didn't know how far it was going to go. And halfway into that interview, he's like, this, this is even worse than I thought when we brought yeah, you on. Yeah, that surprised me, to be honest with you. Uh, that surprised me yeah. because I, I, knew, I knew what she had to say yeah. uh, weeks ago. And and what it meant, and it doesn't surprise me. Who was who was the person that took heat in like February or March for daring to say that you don't understand communists if you don't realize there were literally people saying they'd never release this on sure their own people, would. and I'm like, are you nuts? Do you not understand communism at all? No. Have you not read a single history book of the last century? I think that's been the problem is that the, we have somewhere along the line, since you and I went to school, a major disconnect with that side of history. And people are sitting back going, oh, these people are wonderful. They oh, just want yeah, all our welfare. Yeah. Well, the, the, Say that to the, the millions CCP of has been pouring millions and millions and millions into every, uh, every college and university in the United States, and sadly, through other sources, into seminaries in the United States. And that's why there's no backbone for someone to say communism is a godless evil. It is a scourge upon the planet. And um, as a result, you get that kind of stuff. Well, anyway, um, not quite along the same lines, but interestingly interesting as well. Uh, Dr. Anthony Bradley, if you want someone who has gone through a massive uh, paradigm shift, as many people like him have, uh, over the past uh, 10 years, um, you can look at a series, a, a thread of tweets that he posted on September uh, 10th, I believe. And um, I didn't see them initially because, of course, he banned me a long time ago. He detests Reformed Baptists. He he not only misrepresents this horrifically and doesn't care at all and knows better. That's the That's the hard part is he's a very intelligent man. But he's he's a very he has a lot of animus um, and animosity toward uh, toward others, sadly. Um, and so he had a whole series just going after the Puritans, and just and if you'd ask him anything, and this has been his mo for a long, long time. Instead of answering your question, he just links you to an Amazon book, as if he's the only one who reads books, and so he doesn't figure anybody else's read book. Um. But this is this is one of the this is six thirteen p.m. September tenth. How is anyone a fan of English or American Puritans giving their racial views? If seventeenth and eighteenth, assuming century Puritans 
were in the U.S. in 2020. They'd be the leaders of alt-right, Aryan nation, white supremacist Christian organizations, while very pious, I would imagine it should be, very, well, while doing so very piously, or very piously doing so. Mather, Edwards, etc. Thoughts? Question mark. And like I said, there was a whole thread that just basically said that, and, and this is how Bradley does things. If you just knew what I know, then you would agree with me. There's, there's no other viewpoints because I know so much. And I, you know, I get it. I, I'm sure I'm accused of being the exact same way at times. I try not to be. But anyway, um, earlier today, I was teaching online and I was teaching one of my favorite uh, courses, classes. Um, I was teaching, I'm going to turn this whole thing into spaghetti here eventually. Uh, I was teaching church history. And certainly one thing that I have said on this program over and over and over again in dealing with church history is that if we are going to be truthful, fair, accurate, if we're going to in any way hope that those in the future will look back upon us with the slightest bit of grace, then we must exercise great grace in allowing people to live when they lived and not when we live and not apply cultural standards of our day to people of the past. I've given the illustration that happened just a couple of years ago when we visited uh, the Wartburg Castle in Germany. And we were talking about how certain people were badly treated by not only the Roman Catholics, but by the magisterial reformers. And I was speaking with one of the people in the group, and that person said to me, I, I have a hard time believing these reformers were actually Christians. If they could know what was going on to fellow believers and not do anything about it, how could they be Christians? How could they be Christians? And as I said then, I said, be very careful, because if you hold that standard, you might find yourself without any Christians in the past at all. Because any meaningful reading of history will reveal all sorts of perspectives and understandings, and a part of those have gone before us, that we might find problematic. And if we elevate any one of those to the standard of this is absolutely necessary to be a Christian, that is not a biblical standard, is not a theolog- an objective theological standard in regards to one God, the doctrine of the Trinity, you're going to have very few Christians left. So what I have been hearing now for quite some time is, well, no slave owner was ever a Christian. Because 1 John says that a true Christian is a person who loves their brother. And no slave owner could possibly say they love their brother who would own another human being. 
and therefore all slave owners are not Christians. And if you point to the existence of Christian slave owners, even in Scripture itself, or if you point out that pretty much all the patriarchs were slave owners as well, um, and that slavery has been a part of every Christian culture, I'm sorry, every culture, down to the history of the, of the of the world, what you get back is that's what the slave owners said, you're defending slavery. Did you see it recently? It happened two weeks ago. Somebody made a comment. I forget who it was. Oh, it was, um, well, it might have been Bradley going after Tom Nettles. And so if you dare point out the history of this conversation, the biblical arguments for the abolition of slavery, the um, recognition of different kinds of slavery, um, just talk about Philemon, talk about Colossians, talk about those passages that these people just want to ignore. We're actually in Scripture, we're inspired apostles, said to people in the condition of slavery, which in Rome and Greece was chattel slavery. Sure, there were powerful slaves, but they, they were still the property of their owners. Read the books on slavery historically. Um, if you dare point to those things, then you're defending slavery. So if you acknowledge the existence of slavery in history, then you're defending slavery. That's the new thing. You, you can't you, you can't do history anymore because history is not friendly to this kind of rhetoric. Um, you just simply have to, well, you just have to start tearing down statues and destroy history because you can't talk about it. You can't study it. You can't keep it in its context. So Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield can't be Christians. They're gone. Uh, Philemon, I could not either. And if you point that out, if you point out that error in the argument, then you're defending slavery. You're not defending slavery. You are refuting an absurd position on the subject. So there are all sorts of other issues that we could look at that if you want to, if you want to, well, let's, let's, let's do the Martin Luther thing. Um, I think, um, let, let me see if, if, if you wanted to pull this up, um, let me just look at it really quickly here uh, and give you, yeah, um, if you want to, to see the whole discussion, and it's only, wow, four minutes? It seems like it's not longer than that. But there's a, I'm so thankful that there's a four minute long video on YouTube. If you just look up Fritz Erba, E-R-B-E, Fritz Erba, I just put James James White Vartberg, that's the first thing it pops up too. Um, I talk about the fact that Fritz Erba, who died in prison at the Wartburg Castle, his uh, case was well known to Martin Luther. And Martin Luther did not intercede for him. Martin Luther considered Fritz Erba a threat to public um, continuity, uh, a, a preacher who would bring about anarchy in society. And so he felt it was appropriate. Now, Let's use the argument here, because the argument I've been told is Jonathan Edwards could not be a Christian because Jonathan Edwards violates 1 John, which says you're to love your brother. How about Martin Luther? Fritz Erba, why was he in that prison? 
for his views on baptism, which he derived from reading Martin Luther's translation of the German Bible. So you use that standard, Martin Luther's not a Christian. John Calvin's not a Christian. Ulrich Zwingli drowned Anabaptists in the river in Zurich. Not a Christian. Farrell, not a Christian. Right? If we're gonna if we're gonna be logical here, then you just anybody who does not walk the line with twenty first cent early twenty first century woke epistemology and mora- morality was never a Christian. There was no there were no Christians until just recently. They must have been hiding in the caves, I guess, if there were. They just weren't no just weren't known. That must be the idea that are being put for, that's being put forward. I would just ask you, some of you have never done this. Um, yeah, uh, actually, well, there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of them here, but I don't think I have, I don't think I have that one in here. Uh, read Ian Murray's, uh, biography of Jonathan Edwards. I have a number of Edwards, uh, Edwards Unknowing Christ, um, Charity is Fruits, Religious Affections, so on and so forth down here. Uh, but I don't have the Ian Murray uh, biography uh, down here. Read read some things about Edwards. Read, read his his resolutions. Uh, they're, they're written as an extremely young man, and they are truly amazing. They're very convicting. Um, uh, I just have to glance down here, um, resolve never do anything, which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolve that I will live. So as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. This is not what most young people are thinking about in their late teens, early twenties. Live, resolve to live so at all times, as I think is best in my devout frames, and when I have clearest notions of things of the gospel and of another world. Um, to inquire every night as I am going to bed, wherein I have been negligent, what sin I have committed, and wherein I have denied myself, also, uh, also at the end of every week and every, every year. Um, a lot of stuff about about time, utilization of time, that (laughs) um, when you think about how different things were back then. uh, Resolve never to do anything out of revenge. Resolve never to suffer the least motions of anger to irrational beings. In other words, never get mad at your horse or your car, I suppose. (laughs) Never to speak evil of anyone so that it shall tend to his dishonor more or less upon no account except for some real good. Uh, a lot about relationships. There's just so much in here that you just simply have to go, well, it was all fake. It was all fake because at that time in his society, he didn't see what I think he should have seen. That's what people are saying. So there's a new, somehow Paul missed this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he defined the gospel, but there was a verse missing. There must be a textual variant uh, somewhere, and it was very early on, and so it's been lost or something like that. Um, but there's a, there's a new standard. 
And Philemon has been decanonized functionally, as has Colossians, or at least sections of it uh, have, have, been, have been decanonized. They just have to be removed uh, because they admitted the existence of masters and slaves in the local body without rebuking them. And that had to be done because the idea is Christianity had to end all social evils right then and there. It was a revolutionary idea. No, it was revolutionary in the sense of being totally different. That is power and weakness, so on and so forth. But it wasn't revolutionary in that the Apostle Paul was saying, pick up your swords. Let's go burn. Let's go. Let's go pull down some statues in Rome. Didn't do it. What he wanted to do instead was introduce the Praetorian Guard to Jesus <laughs> because they're going to be talking around Caesar. <laughs> and so you, you do it that way. You don't do it by violent revolution and overthrow of you know, racing through the streets with your sword in your hand. But that's what, they, that's what is now demanded. That's what is de- now demanded. And so you have uh, Dr. Anthony Bradley uh, saying that the 17th, 18th century Puritans, if they were alive today, see, this is, and this, of course, is what's, from a historical perspective, so utterly absurd that any man of his intelligence and education should be embarrassed to have typed these words. Did I say that nicely? I tried to say that nicely. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, sir. But this is one of the most unscholarly, stupid things I've ever seen you type. How's that? That's, how I, that's what I wanted to say. You don't do church history like this. You should know better. Were you asleep during church history? You don't take people... This is, this is what Dave Hunt does to Augustine. This is what Ken Wilson does to Augustine. It's what everybody does to Augustine. Let's drag Augustine out of his context, put him into a modern context, and condemn him for whatever it is we're looking to condemn him for. This is easy. This is simplistic church history, and it is reprehensible for anyone. To call themselves a scholar and to engage in that kind of thing. To say that they'd be leaders of alt-right, Aryan nation, white supremacist Christian organizations? Really? That is, that is race-baiting rhetoric at its lowest level. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. Unbelievable. Stop treating our brothers and sisters of the past in this fashion. You owe them an apology, is what you owe them. You say, well, they had different views than I do. Yes, they did. And are you so stinking wise that you came up with that all on your own? How about, how about the Spirit of God working amongst the people of God? How about leaving some room for that? You want to look at the early church and see some of the things they believed? And we go, ha, 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 But if you had lived back then, what would you have been? What would you have believed? You're standing on the shoulders of giants. And if you don't acknowledge their, their, their role, then you're just simply arrogant. <sighs> mm, 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 mm. All right. Sorry, I, I need to move on from there because this... <laughs> um, <clears throat> did you notice CDC... 
the CDC moving ahead with critical race theory trainings despite Trump order. To catch this, the CDC is entrenched in critical theory. Now, let me ask you just for a second. You don't think that's impacting their utilization of the COVID panic to promote critical theory ends? Of course it does. Of course it does. I actually had, I, and I didn't get the link for it. Someone just showed it to me, but I asked for the link. I didn't get it. But I actually saw an article in Forbes that said that speaking English spreads COVID more than other languages because we spit more. That was the first thought I had is obviously no one at Forbes speaks German. No one at Forbes speaks German because if, if, if it's passed by spitting, the Germans should be completely wiped out by now. And since I taught a group of them this morning, they aren't, they're there. They looked fine. Um, so that didn't work, but anyone who speaks, <laughs> speaks German um, knows that, well, the Germans introduced social distancing just so you wouldn't get sprayed uh, every time that you pronounce one of those words where you've taken five pre-existing words and just crammed them into one long word. <laughs> uh, uh, so, yeah. Um, you've seen the videos where, where you know, uh, you, you have French people saying, Hospital and the Germans says Krankenhaus. <laughs> you know, it just spits all over the 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 the, the, the TV camera. <laughs> yeah, ich, ich bin ein Berliner. It's really it's ich bin Berliner, but he just threw an ein in for the front of it. That was Kennedy long ago, but that's another story. Anyhow, yeah. So the CDC, you got to understand, WHO and CDC are political organizations, deeply political organizations, which is why we're seeing the absurdities that we're seeing. We're seeing people talking about being locked down for another 14 months and all the rest of this stuff. And it's just, despite the massive mountain of data demonstrating the stupidity of all this. Anyway, um, then uh, you have an article that appeared in um, HuffPo. Now, HuffPo, I mean, really. HuffPo is HuffPo. What do you expect for HuffPo? But what you need to understand is this is the kind of article that informs the mind of the person on the left that you're trying to reach. And you're trying to identify what the barriers are in their thinking. And this is one of the barriers. Okay. They've read so many of these articles and it happens to tie in with the COVID-19 stuff. I just want you to listen to this. I was an evangelical Christian, and I know why many of them resist logic about COVID-19. Well, that got my attention. This global pandemic has revealed there's already a virus inside some American forms of belief. The best testimonies in church were always from addicts and ex-cons who started with, if it weren't for God, I might be dead by now. In 2020, I wonder the opposite. If it weren't for no longer believing, I could be dead by now. After all, many American Christians are sprinting toward literal mortal danger toward COVID-19. This is also a really good uh, panic producer. I mean, and that's that's what HuffPo does. It's, it's, and it's working, man. It's working. If you're driving down the road and seeing the 
people alone, their cars all masked up with their windows up. It's working. Um, years ago, after graduating from a Southern Baptist college, not named, might be Bruton Parker for all we know. Uh, I set out to be an overseas missionary. I believed in a savior who died for me and I was diligent in living for him. I encapsulated all the phrases we heard in church on fire for God, filled with his love for someone like me, whose only desire in life was to have a close relationship with God and to feel this closeness. I believed God would put things in my path to bless me or test me. Both would make me stronger in my faith. Are you catching anything so far? You might say, well, I'm just trying to be, you know, kind and yeah, but actually this is a, this is an apostate. So go ahead and be critical and listen because this is all about her. This is a her, by the way, this is all about her. There's something here about the glory of God and no, no, it's all about her. While at an international missionary base trained to spread the gospel to people around the world, I was surrounded by people, some in their fifties and sixties telling me how God wanted to bless me with my own prayer language. A Southern Baptist didn't believe speaking in tongues was real in modern times. It's one of the beliefs that distinguish between Christian denominations. But I wanted God. I wanted this. People placed their hands on me to pray for me to receive the spiritual language, but nothing was coming from me. As a Baptist, reading the Bible and being good was the measure of a true Christian. Catch that? Ooh, that was deep theology, huh? As a Baptist, reading the Bible and being good was the measure of a true Christian. Now surrounded by people who believed there was more. God was greater. I just wasn't stepping out in faith and receiving God's gift. I wasn't letting go. God is perfect. Humans are not. This was on me, and I was failing. People at the missionary base noticed I was broken over this. Each night they gathered around to lay hands on me and implore the Holy Spirit to wash over me and show his love to me. Sounding familiar in there, Rich? That it sure is. That's right. With more praying and chatting with people late into the night, they realized what could be blocking me from receiving the gift of tongues. I'd graduated from college. <laughs> Later, a leader in the group raised his hand to the sky and commanded the demon of intellectualism out of me. I cried. I wanted that too. I was thinking too much, I'd been told. I was putting God in a box by trying to figure him out with logic, and it was holding me back from him blessing me. Okay? Rich says he's got that one. Speak out in faith. Just let it come, the leader said. I decided I needed to break through this rational thinking stifling me, and so I followed their directions and emulated some of the sounds of speaking in tongues I heard coming out of the mouths of the people surrounding me. Oh, yeah. I've lost track of the number of folks going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. As I did, their prayers got louder with excitement. Adults, leaders, people who had put their lives in the line for God could tell I was being blessed, and it roused their souls. I repeated the same odd five sounds again and again like a child starting to talk. I'd take those few sounds with me as I became a missionary in Asia and build on them. I'd whisper them under my breath while teaching English as a guise to convert the young Buddhist monks in a temple. This has become like a magical mantra. You catching that? I mean... I'd let more sounds come out as I prayed over strangers to be miraculously healed of physical sickness. I would pursue God and take his message to places that were dangerous. I would repeat more of you and less of me. I would continue to see intellectualism as counter to what God was trying to teach me. I'd surround myself only with people who knew the Holy Spirit's miracles and spend less time with family and friends who were lukewarm, non-miracle-believing Christians. So, what's our... 
What's our motto? Theology matters. Theology matters. All the emotions in the world cannot take. I thought believe I thought reading the Bible and being good is what makes you a Christian. Nothing here about repentance, nothing here about the cross, nothing here about the atonement, nothing here about justification, nothing here about Christ-centeredness. It's all me, 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 feelings, 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 emotions, 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 emotions. The problem with fervency is it led to the problem with fervency is it led to in-depth Bible reading and searching out secondary sources to support my beliefs. Both flung me into a decade of deconversion. I'm currently a skeptic. Now, there, those are three sentences that are covering a lot. How did fervency lead to in-depth Bible reading? You were just saying you were staying away from people who were doing the in-depth Bible reading. Maybe you were just staying away from the people who might have had answers to the questions that you came up with with your in-depth Bible reading. I'm currently a skeptic. Back then, however, there was no skepticism in me, and it was seen as a sin to entertain it. So I'm not surprised that there are groups of Christians who believe COVID-19 is a hoax, or even if it's not a hoax, God will protect them from it. And may a poll by the University of Chicago... Now remember, this is, this is in HuffPo. This is, this is what people want to believe about Christians. That this is that the Christian you're talking to. So when you're talking to one of these people, this is what's running in their back of their mind, going, "Oh, that's what this person's about." They're all about turning off the mind. All right. In May, Paul by the University of Chicago Divinity School and the Associated Press Nork Center for Public Affairs Research showed 43% of evangelical Protestants, a group I'd identified as when both a Southern Baptist and Charismatic believer say they think COVID-19 is a message from God. Not that God caused it, but that he is using it to tell the world to change. Theology matters. More than that, 55% of all believers feel God will protect them from the virus. Hmm, that's interesting. In what way? COVID-19 has made groups more vocal, more determined, and emboldened. (coughs) to march forward with their mission. It is the same visceral imperative many of us feel with racial equality. It's seen as life and death. Notice, she's just, she's still religious. She just changed religions. Okay? She's changed religion. She had an empty shell of what she called Christianity before. Now she's filled it with her new secular religion. Never had Christianity to begin with, never understood it. Shows that plainly here. But she's just looking for a new religion all the time. Um, Gathering together is the best way to get out the message and be heard, but accompanied by their belief that God is protecting them against a government mask mandate, these particular groups of Christians are spreading more than the Word of God. If I hadn't left the church, would I believe masks aren't needed like the doctor and minister Stella Emanuel who preached in front of the Capitol while touting hydroxychloroquine as a cure? Would I be attending outside praise and worship services like uh, the one Sean Fucht led recently, gathering upward of 11,000 unmasked believers? <clears throat> if I hadn't left the charismatic movement that was always requiring God to do tricks and encourage me to walk out in faith, I have no doubt I would be attending a church in person. That's the worst thing possible to do. I mean, now, go loot, riot, burn, beat people to death. That's okay because that's for social justice. But 
church? Yeah, in person? That's terrible. I have no doubt I'd attend purposeful God is more powerful than COVID-19 gatherings like the young woman who died from the virus. Not given a name, but, you know, you just throw it out there for the fun of it. That's how uh, creating panic works. And I'm sure I would stand by any number of explanations used to explain away those who got infected, the person had a weakened immune system, or they were reckless to start with, I'd probably think. Christianity is based on one singular belief, Jesus raised from the dead. Isn't it rose from the dead? Once you believe in one miracle, the pathway is paved to believe in the next. Well, that wasn't the first miracle. (laughs) The first miracle was God created everything. I think she missed that part somehow. Once you believe in one miracle, the pathway is paved to believe in the next. Not all branches of faith go as far as handling snakes, but they're all rooted in the one miracle that overrides our intellect. Theology matters. That's why as a young idealistic Christian who only wanted to grow in my faith, which didn't mean growing deeper into the faith. I was prayed over to sever me from my intellectual and rational thinking. This global pandemic has revealed there's already a virus inside some American forms of belief. Ones that believe God isn't powerful enough to exist outside of gatherings or that he wouldn't actually command us to do so. Or ones who believe this is in God's plan so he can show his power. The kind of spiritual terrorism is showing up on a national scale and as in my own faith journey, only reason can get us out. Behold the voice of the religious left. And this religious left, if it gains power in the United States, is totalitarian. So it views what we believe as a virus. It needs to be wiped out. That's what you have in HuffPo. That's what you have in HuffPo. Okay. Um, yes. <laughs> One more. One more thing to get to today. Uh, and this will take a little while, so we probably will go past our uh, normal hour. But we've been doing hour, hour and a half, two hour, whatever. We're at 1080p. Rich says we're working just fine. Doesn't matter. All right. That's very good. I'm glad you did not speak in tongues to do it. Uh, did you try at all? Uh, no. You, you, I think you were speaking in tongues a couple times when it was failing. So, um, but not like that. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, I don't want to uh, burn out too many clutches in the audience at this point. Um, but we're going to totally shift direction for the last portion of the program. And I mean, totally shift direction. Uh, some of you may have just fast forwarded to get to this. Uh, we'll have to put the timestamp in it for those who want to. Um, but uh, I wanted to read a um, brief article that Basam Zawadi uh, posted because I found it interesting in light of what happened a couple months ago when Dr. Yasser Khadi um, spoke openly about the fact that the traditional narrative that has been passed down and become popular in Islamic circles about the transmission of the text of the Quran simply can't stand up to examination. And he was exactly right. It can't. <clears throat> that's, that's true. Um, <clears throat> but obviously one of my key interests in this subject is the comparison 
<clears throat> of the transmission of the text of the New Testament with the transmission of the text of the Quran. Muslims believe that the transmission of the text of the Quran has been absolutely accurate and that there are the vast majority of Muslims. I, I can't believe Bassam is not aware of this. So he must know about this. But the vast majority of Muslims with whom you'll speak are not aware of the textual variations that do exist within the manuscripts of the text of the Quran. And even if they do, it seems as, as Bassam, Bassam finishes the article, it's a very short article, uh, with uh, praising Allah that Muslims don't have that burden given they don't merely rely on manuscripts. So there is a thought, and some of you might remember from the debate I did at Duke University, what was that, 2008-ish, somewhere around there, 2008, 2010, somewhere in that that time frame. Um, The gentleman that I debated there at at Duke um, made the argument that the, the primary mechanism of maintaining the text of the Quran was its recitation, its memorization. Now, this is very common amongst Muslims to think, well, you could never change the Quran because so many people have it memorized. Y'all remember what happened in London when I was debating uh, Adnan Rashid and he asked a man that he believed to be a person who had memorized the Quran to quote a section? It was a disaster. It didn't work. It, it, it didn't work. He couldn't identify the proper place and, and so on and so forth. Memorization is a wonderful thing. But what's interesting is Bassam's going to make the argument, we need to know word for word. The only way to do that is in written form. The only way to do that is in written form. Um, you take someone who's memorized the Quran and you put them in a room with four other people who also claim to have memorized the Quran and have the other four people consistently recite a particular text from one of the many readings of the Quran, because there are many different readings of the Quran. And the one who memorized from another version of the Quran, the Arabic Quran, will, over time, struggle to maintain his belief that his reading is the accurate reading over against the other four. So the reality is that memorization can never be as accurate a method of the transmission of written, of of linguistic information that the written word is. It just can't. And a lot, of, a lot of Muslims seem to think that Christians don't ever memorize Scripture. We do. But we all know that, well, and this, this would be a good cross-parallel for Christians, how often, in light of the existence of many uh, English translations today, how often have you quoted a verse from memory, and then someone else is like, is that what it says? And they quote it, and there's a slight difference. It's because you've memorized the NESV and they've memorized the ESV, and now you're not certain as to whether what you memorized was whether you memorized it correctly or not. So, for example, 
at our church, we have a verse that goes along with the uh, catechism question that we're studying. Right now we're doing Hebrews 2.17, but they always use the ESV, and most of my memory verses have been done in the NASB. And so I have to keep, I have to look, even if it's a verse I have memorized, I have to read it as it's on the page, or I may end up misleading because I'm leading the people and reciting it. So I have to be careful of things like that. That's a similar situation to the various versions of the, of the uh, Quran that you could have memorized from. So all of this takes us back to the issue of the text of the Bible versus that of the Quran. So, Basam Zawadi writes, Many Christian apologists like to undermine the importance of the necessity of the Bible's textual uh, preservation. For all what supposedly matters is that key essential Christian doctrines are preserved. Now, I think Basam would know, that's not me. That's That's not my perspective. I mean, there is no question, I have stated, and will state again, that if you use the... Texas Receptus, or you use the UBS 5th edition, the NA28, it does teach the same theology, if you use the same uh, hermeneutical methodology. There's no question about that. And I would argue that the Old and New Testaments together provide so much more information and are so much clearer, mubinun, to use the Arabic, than the text of the Quran, that the theology of Christianity is the same, whichever one of those texts you would use. I, I do believe that. But I also believe that we have all the original readings of the New Testament in the manuscript tradition. And it's interesting that the example he gives, well, let me get, get, read with the example. The deficiency in this reasoning is quite glaring for a number of reasons. Number one, as Bart Ehrman cleverly pointed out in his 2006 debate with William Lane Craig. Now, Just stop for a moment. I really believe that I have a significantly, I will say higher, um, more old-fashioned, orthodox (laughs) uh, view of Scripture than William Lane Craig does. Um, He clearly struggles with the concept of inerrancy in any meaningful fashion. Uh, So hopefully that has come out in the debates that we have done. Uh, But he says, if we were to go with this logic, then one could discard entire chapters or even books, such as Numbers, Ezekiel, Proverbs, Mark, and 1 Peter, and still retain the key essential doctrines of Christian theology. Well, there is a small element of truth that's partly related to whom you are addressing and what the debate was about, Um, and then the issue of what do you mean by essential doctrines, because Dr. Craig has often represented the minimal facts view, the uh, mere Christianity view, the get someone to believe, then bring them into orthodoxy view. Uh, That's been something that's been a part of our criticism for a very, very, very long time. Um, And so if if you're meaning that as in what, how much of the Bible do you need to proof text just monotheism, the Trinity, the cross and resurrection? Well, the problem is all of those things are based upon the full orb of Scripture. It's not that there is a particular 
key proof text in Numbers. But Numbers is a part of the scripture that Jesus is making reference to when he teaches about the authority of God's word. Um, Ezekiel, massively important in the background of the Gospel of John. Seriously, all over the place. Mark, oh goodness. Uh, Totally miss it on that one. Uh, I I hope you don't believe even what Ehrman says, that Mark has some low Christology, because it doesn't. It it has a very, very high Christology. Um, First Peter, lots of key stuff in First Peter 2. Anyway, so the issue is what you mean by essential doctrines and understanding of how essential doctrines are derived. And it's from the whole canon of Scripture, not just um, from proof texting. Intuitively, no one is okay with that. No one is or should be lack. Well, <laughs> I'd be slow to put it that way, but some, uh, the more liberal a quote-unquote Christian is, the more they're going to be okay with that. And you may not talk with a lot of those folks because, to be perfectly honest with you, they, they don't have any reason to be talking to you because they don't have anything... They don't believe what they believe stronger than what you believe you believe. Therefore, why should they be talking to you? Do you understand what I'm saying? The reason I want to talk to you, the reason we debated in London, the reason I'd like to do uh, debates in the future, though they may end up being online, unfortunately, um, but is because what I believe, I believe as strongly as what you believe. And so there's a reason for us to engage. But the liberal, I honestly sit around going, I'm not sure why liberals do what liberals do. I'm not sure why they believe the things they believe, and I'm not sure why they they don't engage in apologetics. What liberals engage in apologetics? Um, Not in any meaningful fashion. So, um, intuitively, only some people are okay with that. Everybody at Union Theological Seminary, I assure you, is perfectly okay with that. They really are. They'd let you teach there, and they really wouldn't care. It's just whatever, you know. You would run screaming from the place, going, no, 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 no. No one is or should be lax about losing anything from God's word, since God, unlike us human beings, doesn't communicate discardable words. I agree 1,000%. I agree 1,000%. I'm... But you know... There are less conservative Muslims, and you also know there are less conservative Christians than I, who would go, well, you know, you're being a little bit too literal there. Number two, this ignores the inextricable correlation between the preservation of meaning and text, for the former heavily relies on the latter. A single word could change the entire meaning of a sentence or chapter. This also entails a potentiality to influence the meaning of any theological doctrines being communicated. Also, let's say that some essential verses went missing. Well, it's possible that those verses were essential enough to have heavily influenced how we interpret other passages. Can you imagine interpreting a person's stance on a given subject without having read all that he says? We call that lousy scholarship. What then about God's speech? Okay, but let me point out that I think there are some issues here. Um, only the most radical skeptics are saying that there are entire verses missing from the Bible that we have no knowledge of. I don't think Bart Ehrman says that. 
Remember when I asked Bart Ehrman where he felt the original was no longer accessible, he gave me one utterly irrelevant answer that had to do with one word. That was it. He didn't say, oh, this entire chapter is verses. No. And nothing other than that one text in First Peter, or is it Second Peter? Anyway, um, that's all he had. Because I think he would say, "No, we, we, we have what the apostles wrote. We we don't have it perfectly, but we we have what the apostles wrote. We we, you know, he would argue that Jesus was anger angry with the leper." Uh, he would argue that uh, Hebrews 2.9 says, uh, 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 without the grace of God, um, without, I'm sorry, without God rather than by the grace of God, one letter difference. So he'd argue stuff like that. But both of those are in the manuscript tradition. We have those readings. We evaluate those readings. Um, I would just point out that according to Sahih al-Bukhari, the first Mus'haf of the Quran was missing entire verses. Now, it wasn't a long period of time, and no one seemed to be reading it. But it was missing verses that were found then in the minds of only one person at a later point in time. And I can show you, contemporaneous with the time period of the collection of the Hadith, people saying that there are portions of the Quran that were lost at the Battle of Yamama. So, the uh, memorization backup plan is only as good as the person staying alive. And so, your own sources record, remember the verse in Surah Tataba, in Surah 9, that Uthman restores from the memory of one person. And that's the one example is given to us, but it seems like there were others. So, if you're not holding to the tenacity it's a textual term, the tenacity of the Quranic manuscripts, um, then you've got to answer the same questions here that we do. And that with a text that's much shorter and much younger. See, we're, we've, got, we've got 600 years more transmission time to deal with, just with the New Testament, let alone the Old Testament. So, Things should be a whole lot better on your side. But the reality is, we've got a whole lot more data on our side. Part of that is due to just the mindset on the two sides. My side is much more intent upon textual critical studies than yours is. Just look at the response to a simple statement from Yasser Khadi. Whoa, blow up. And then the other reason for that, Bassam, is that uh, the transmission methodology of the New Testament was not the transmission methodology established by Uthman. That is, we want everybody to have the scriptures, so there are far more manuscripts. And everything that that entails. Everything that entails. Which is actually a positive thing, not a negative thing. But, um, we're going along here. Three, it's simply untrue that some of the disputed texts have had no theological implications. Um, it is there's, there's two different statements. Disputed texts have theological implications. No disputed text changes a central Christian doctrine. So, before we get to the 
I think poor example that you use. I would let me let's let's use a better example. John 1 18. In John chapter Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 18. Whether the phrase is monogenes huios or homonogenes theos, unique son, unique God. If this if the reading is theos, as it is in the two earliest papyri manuscripts, we have the Gospel of John and the two great unsealed texts, and in other other uh, translations, um, then this is a place where Jesus is identified as theos in the text of the New Testament, along with other places. If it's huios, it's still an important text, but it doesn't use the term theos. So the textual variant would impact what verses specifically would use the os of Jesus. It goes the other direction. 1 Timothy 3.16, whether it is uh, he who was revealed in the flesh, hos, ephanarothe, or theos, ephanarothe, God was manifest in the flesh. The earliest manuscripts say he who, later manuscripts say God. So, most of modern Christian scholarship looks at that, and right now, anyways, is saying Jesus is called God in John 1.18. He's not. In 1 Timothy 3.16, the later manuscripts reverse that. And so you'd have different verses in the listing of verses you would use. Not that what is being taught is changed by that. It's just the, list, the verses being listed. So I think that's a better example, because 1 John 5.7 is not original. 1 John 5, 7 did not exist in the Greek manuscript tradition until the 14th century. And then it came in from the Latin. It arose as a gloss from the Latin in the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries, um, and then made its way into the Greek text through diglot versions of the New Testament. So that has been known all along. The Council of Nicaea did not use 1 John 5, 7 to defend the deity of Christ. If it was sitting in their New Testaments, wouldn't they have? They didn't use it. Um, the great Christological controversies were fought through without reference to this text. So it, it arose after all of that as a gloss, as an explanation in the Latin manuscript tradition that came into the Greek manuscript tradition. Um, that's been known for a very, 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 very long time. But I continue. I mean, 1 John 5, 7 through 8 was a smoking gun against Unitarians. With it out of the way, Unitarians now have some wiggle room to push their views. No, I, I, I'm sorry. That's just not the case. Um, even there, there are Unitarians called modalists who can read 1 John 5, 7 through 8, and they're fine with it because they're modalists. They believe Jesus was God in human flesh, and so they're one, one person. They can interpret it as they wish. Because in context, it's talking about witnesses. It's not talking about the nature of God, fundamentally. So, um, how about whether the Gospel of John teaches that Jesus is the unique Son of God? There isn't any question about that. I'm, I wish you had given references here, um, because I'm not aware of any... I mean, are you thinking about John 1.18 here? Because there are other places of, where monogamous huios is used, unique Son where there's no textual variant. So there's no question the Gospel of John teaches that Jesus is monogamous, monogamous weos, or homonogamous weos. There's, there's no question about that. So I'm not sure what the reference was there. 
How about whether Luke rejects the notion of substitutionary atonement or not? Um, that I think com- is, I think this is you're coming from the from Ehrman's context here, and his interpretation of these variants is extremely strained. And just one thing to keep in mind: Ehrman's facts on textual variants will, will always be right. Interpretation is a different issue. But his theological facts can be really wrong. He's not a theologian. Remember, he's, he's the one who sat in a debate with a Dallas Seminary professor and said, no New Testament writer ever identified Jesus as Yahweh. I mean, that, that was a major face plant. We've wanted to debate that, but he wanted 25000 bucks to do it. Um, but that's a major face plant. I mean, that is too easily refuted. I mean, even you know the passages where that's the case. So don't go with him on the theology. Theology is bad. Uh, How about if Luke believed that Jesus only became the Son of God at baptism rather than the eternity past or not? I wish you'd given a reference there because I don't know what textual variant you're you're talking about at that point. Um, Are you talking about if the baptism narratives became or something like that? Because there's just so much more in Luke. Um, Remember, what Ehrman's doing is he's He's isolating text. He, he, he has a great aversion to allowing Luke to be Luke. It's interesting. He'll allow John to be John, and he says John teaches the deity of Christ, but he likes to pick on the synoptics in a little different way. Several examples could be given, and all these theological questions hinge on minor textual variants. Now, I, I, I would challenge you on that. Throw those out there, and let's, let's uh, demonstrate there's more to it than that. Um, so does preservation of religious text down to the word matter? Absolutely. Okay. So what about the Quran? Because, see, you only know about these variants because we're open. We have critical editions. You can buy the NA28, you can buy the UBS5, you can follow the uh, ECM as it develops online, you can look at the CBGM data charts, you can look at the TR, you can... We make everything available. Where's your critical edition? Basam? Where, where... I mean, I can, I can grab my top copy uh, manuscript and open it up to the charts where you've got the differences between the, the Mushaf listed there. That's a, that's a form of textual critical material, but it's rudimentary at absolutely the best. But the fact is you have textual variants. Um, shouldn't, shouldn't we be able to right now, you know, just you and I, just grab our phone and pull up all of the uh, references uh, to the Sa'ana manuscript, the Palimpsest manuscript, all the Palimpsest readings. Shouldn't that be on here already? Because they're there. The material exists. We've got people on our side, CSNTM, the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. You can go on the CSNTM website and you can... You can dig to your heart's content in looking at high-resolution pictures. Don't we need that for the Sa'ana manuscripts? I have the, uh, uh, the British Museum and the Paris uh, 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 manuscripts for the, uh, uh, for the Quran right down there. But they're in book form. We should, we should have those digitally today, shouldn't we? We should. By now. I mean, simple question. Uh... I look at all this stuff in Dubai and places like that where they're building buildings to the moon 
and and they're they're driving around in golden cars that are literally made of gold. And then I look at where studies of the Quran are, and I go, huh, that's strange. Now, don't get me wrong. I have to donate to CSNTM, so we got the pro- we've got similar problems over here. But there's a lot more interest, a lot more interest and drive on our side to create textual critical materials openly than there is on your side. you got to admit that. I mean, what could be done if just a few of those golden cars <laughs> were melted down and would fund serious scholarship, not... Let's cover up the palimpsest manuscripts of the Quran, which has been happening. I remember in 2006, I I just happened to come across, I had just started, I think I had just had my first debate with Shabir and stuff, and a palimpsest manuscript for the Quran came up for uh, uh, auction at Sotheby's, and it disappeared. No one has any idea where it went. So let's not use the money to make stuff disappear. Let's use that money to actually create a fully critical edition of the Quran that lists all the variants. And then you can deal with the very issue that you're dealing with here. Don't you think that is important? Because I'm, I'm not even talking about the differences, you know, harfs and all the rest of that stuff in the printed editions. We've got to get, I mean, where did those differences come from? I think they probably came from two sources variations in the manuscripts that were used to produce them and in differences of memorized versions that become popular in particular areas. But you can't textually criticize, you can't analyze the memorization that becomes popular. You could now, now that we're recording it, but you couldn't only 150 years ago. So how do you deal with that? These are all things you all have to deal with if you're going to be fair and apply the same standards. So just about done. This is one of the reasons why Muslims from all theological strands continuously emphasize the 100% textual purity of the Quran. I, but it's not, it's not, I can grab those right down there and show them to you. I can show you the variants. I can show you where stuff's been rubbed out and changed. I can tell you where I can show you, where pages have been torn out and replaced. It, how, how do you maintain this? I, I mean, it, do you hear that from, from my perspective, you're sounding like one of our King James onlyists, you know? That just simply is, oh, 100%. Well, which one of the King James are you talking about? And they don't even know there's more than one King James. They don't know there's a Cambridge version and an Oxford version, that they have differences between them. They don't know that the 1769 Blaney revision that they're memorizing has had lots of changes from the 1611. They don't know these things. So, Basam, you do know these things. So how can you emphasize the 100% textual purity of the Quran when there is no 100% textual purity of the Quran? It's one of the core theological creeds, which all Salafis, Ashuris, Maturidis, the Metazilites, uh, the, how do you say, Kawarij, etc., have adopted. Heck, even heretics didn't go as far as questioning the 100% textual preservation of the Quran. It's required for the very credibility of the Quran's meaning staying intact. Well, okay. If that's the case, Bassam, 
when I show you a single textual variant, are you leaving Islam? Is that what you're going to do? It's a serious question. Really, really, really serious question. Um, If you compromise the preservation of the text, and it sounds like you're saying that you don't see any... the, The preservation of the text of the Quran has to be miraculous. In other words, you are holding Bart Ehrman's perspective. You're holding Bart Ehrman's perspective. First time I, I remember the first time I heard Bart Ehrman's perspective, I was just like, "Why?" Because it's so ahistorical. But Ehrman basically says, if it was inspired, God would not allow any textual variations to occur. And I'm sitting here, what's he going to do? You've got a scribe in, in, in 987 who had a rough night last night because of a thunderstorm. His, his vision isn't as good as it used to be. And so he's making a copy of the New Testament, and he's doing this number, you know, he could use some LASIK, you know, and he misspells a word, and God zaps him with a lightning bolt before he can misspell the word. Is that how this is going to work? Or just all of a sudden takes him over, makes him write the right thing, and it's like, whoa, what happened? I mean, how does this work? I, I, I don't understand it. No written text can be passed on Without textual variation. None ever has been. Every written text you can document textual variations in. No two Quranic manuscripts read identical to one another that are handwritten. It can't be done. That's just the way it is. The photocopier was not invented until 1949. That's the first time you could have an exact copy made without errors. Without any errors at all. So, are you, you? So, those are the questions. Um, if you compromise the preservation of the text, you by default compromise the preservation of the meaning. The only way you could avoid this scenario is if you could pinpoint exactly every single variant down to the dot and clearly prove that in the case for every single example, the variant does not impact the originally intended meaning. Or you could argue that the entire Manuscript tradition continues to hold all the original readings, but you can't. I, I appreciate this, Bassam, and I appreciate whoever sent this to me. Because you can't. You know why you can't? Because you do not have a free transmission of the text. You have a controlled transmission of the text. You have Uthman. You have Uthman. What did Uthman ask? When he produced his version. All other portions of the Quran, all other Mus'haf, what? Burn. Burn them. What's interesting is Christian sources contemporaneous said that they were to be uh, soaked in lye or something like that. Until all the writing was, was destroyed. But the point is, there was a command to destroy what came before. Once you have a destruction of manuscripts in the tradition that is purposeful due to redaction and editing, you can't argue tenacity anymore. I can. Tenacity. That is, that the original readings will continue in the manuscript tradition. You can't argue it because you've had editing. That's the fundamental problem with that form of transmission. 
That's the issue. That's the issue. He says, uh, that's a tall order and requires way too much work, assuming it is even possible, assuming if even possible. And then the last phrase, praise God, Muslims don't have that burden, given that they don't merely rely on manuscripts. So are you saying that there is some mechanism where I can show you those manuscripts down there and there's a variant and the memorized version in the year 2020 corrects that? How's that going to work? How do you know that that's not what was memorized back then and your memorized version today has been changed? You can't. You can't do textual criticism of memorization. Important issues. Yes, sir. I remind you, if we were dependent on memorization, there's a common verse between Arminians and Calvinists that well, it doesn't exactly get memorized very uh, accurately by one side. Matthew twenty three thirty seven. You read my mind. Uh, I didn't have to. Yep. Uh, Matthew twenty three thirty seven. It's it. I I preached on this uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, not only have I heard Arminians misquote it, I heard R.C. Sproul misquote it. They drop. They hey, R.C.'s gone. He doesn't care. Um, they drop a portion that doesn't fit their understanding of what the text is about. How often would I have gathered you under my wings, but you were not willing? That's not what it says. How often would I have gathered your chicks under my wings as a chick gathers her tent, but you were not willing. They leave the part out that who he wanted to gather is not who was unwilling because it doesn't fit their theology. So the memorization goes with the understanding. That's dangerous. That's dangerous when it becomes part of your textual critical methodology. So I'm hoping maybe somebody will... uh, Maybe I'll remember to drop Basam a note and uh, say, hey, I addressed your article and hopefully, hopefully, respectfully, meaningfully, um, I like Basam Zawadi. I think he's a great guy. And I hope someday that the travel stuff will change and we'll be able to, you know, debate in London or wherever. But if not, uh, I understand we're making, uh, as I walked in today, I saw progress uh, toward our own uh, studio that we're putting together for doing this type of debate in a high-quality fashion uh, to do meaningful debates. I'm not talking about the YouTube somebody-in-their-bedroom debates that are becoming so ubiquitous everywhere that you've got the same person doing debate one debate a week. I'm sorry, Hey, if you want to do that, fine, great. You just need to realize that the debates we've been doing over the years, before I debated Bart Ehrman, I spent six months of my life immersed in preparation for that debate. Not six minutes. There's a difference. And it comes out, I think, in the, in the result. Uh, it really, really does. But we're going to be uh, doing those debates and going to have the ability to do so in a proper fashion. Lord willing... And uh, so I hope everyone um, found that to be useful and helpful. And I think what I was saying was maybe someday Bassam will uh, honor us with his presence to discuss these very things uh, because I think they're extremely important. And um, some of you are sitting out there saying, boy, I'd love to have you and Yasser Qadi discuss this. I've talked about that. Uh, There is a book forthcoming. And once the book is coming, not from me, but from, from him. 
then that's exactly what I would like to see happen too. And uh, I think it would be extremely, extremely helpful, extremely useful. All right, there you go. Uh, like it looks like next week is out. Uh, that's just all there is to it. Um, so um, I don't get back until Saturday. Are you at twelve hundred at twenty four hundred baht? Yeah, no, I ain't gonna happen. Yeah, it's out. <laughs> it's out. Uh, yeah, the 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 internet at that high altitude is just really bad. So, anyways, uh, but. Follow us, uh, follow the uh, Theology Matters portion of the blog. Well, just follow the blog, and I'll try to do some stuff on Theology Matters, because you can even do that at 2400 baht. That is, <laughs> some of you are going, what is that? You're too young. You don't know. It's, uh, it was, I had a 300 baht modem once. You need to respect me, you know? It's just, <laughs> we were pioneers, you know? It was transmitting uphill both ways very slowly. It really, really was. Uh, on a phone, man, you know. Uh, I remember the cassette, the cassette tape recorders that were used as disk drives. Um, yep, I'm I'm that old. Let's just stop that right there. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time. God bless.